This podcast is a publication of the Engineering Management Institute, where we are committed to building professional development systems, including project management and people leadership programs that support the growth of engineers and their firms. Download our AE Industry Trends Report for insights on the great resignation, remote work productivity, and people-centric cultures. To get your copy, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Welcome to this episode of the Structural Engineering Channel, a podcast focused on helping structural engineering professionals stay up to date on technical trends in the field and to help them succeed in their careers and lives. In this episode, we'll be talking with Jeremy Begley, a project structural engineer with Dana Fleming in the dams and hydraulics groups based out of Colorado about his passion for engineering and dams and the role that concrete gravity and Arc dams play in providing vital resources to communities. We'll also discuss the benefits and drawbacks of these types of dams and the future of dam design and construction and the importance of having great mentors and a positive wall culture. And towards the end, we'll even get to hear about Jeremy's talent for voice impressions. I'm your co-host, Matt Fickardle. And I'm your co-host, Rachel Holland. Before we go on here, a quick word from our sponsor for this episode, Simpson Strong Tie. Simpson Strong Tie is a building industry pioneer dedicated to helping people design and build safer, stronger homes, structures, and communities. Simpson Strong Tie is making a positive difference for their customers through expert engineering, world class test laboratories, and unrivaled technical support. We invite you to consider working alongside the many talented, passionate, and humble people who are all contributing to our shared mission in an environment that supports a healthy work life balance. It's a place where you can connect, create, and build a career. Visit strongtie.com forward slash careers to learn about our culture and why Simpson Strongtie employees are our most loyal customers. Now let's jump into the conversation of the week with Jeremy. Hi, Jeremy. Welcome to the show. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what made you decide to become an engineer? So happy to be here on this uh, podcast and, and share about my career. So I think getting into uh, like how I got into dams and you know deciding to become an engineer, it kind of goes back to the beginning. I really didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I would say I had a lot of influences in my life, that, um, such as my dad, who um, is a building contractor, and he also is a uh, instructor at the local community college in Southern Colorado, Trinidad State College. And so just having that influence, I think, on my life, uh, seeing how it gave me an appreciation for good design and engineering principles. And I would say that also, too, just in high school, I had a math teacher, who, Ms. Gongler, who really had an influence on me to say, hey, you know, you really are really good at math and science. I really think you should consider a career in engineering. So I just kind of kept that in, in the back of my mind. And when I graduated, I decided to attend the local community college. And that was kind of my non-traditional engineering path. I decided to do that, get some experience in, I signed up for the civil tech program at the time to get some experience in, in engineering uh, in general, maybe get some drafting experience. And then that would make me become, I think, employable and at least get those general skills. And while I was there, I actually connected with one of the adjunct faculty members uh, who just was there just for a semester. And he was a local engineer in the area. 
And he actually offered me a job after that semester. So that gave me an opportunity to actually put some of the engineering knowledge that I was learning from the classroom into practice. So we did a lot of residential and light commercial projects. So I did structural design and a little bit of architectural layouts and so forth with drafting. The man's name was Bob Just, and he really became not just a, a boss, but a mentor as well as a uh, someone who I still look up today, and he's a father figure in my life today. So that was a great opportunity, and I appreciative that I was able to get that within my own community. And while I was attending college, I also met up some with some great um, professors, such as Mr. Philbin and Ms. Clements, who really helped me hone towards that engineering associate's degree to kind of help me guide me in the process to then eventually go on to a four-year university at Colorado State University and get my bachelor's degree. So I had a lot of great people in my life that really helped kind of guide me, including the advisors who helped me find scholarships and and whatnot to make it easier to jump into a four-year university and make that a pathway for me to become who I am today. So that's just kind of the intro there of, of just kind of getting my start in engineering. And then I ended up going to Colorado State where I had you know some amazing professors and, and fellow colleagues, and I got my undergrad in civil engineering. And at that point, I graduated and I wanted to get a real-world experience uh, in the field. So I ended up actually working for URS, which then later became AECOM, and I was doing structural design of a lot of heavy industrial projects, so oil and gas projects, as well as uh, towards the end of my time there, I was working on nuclear projects. And that's what got me, I started doing really heavy structural design in, the, in that realm. But I realized it wasn't really what I wanted to do. I, I'm definitely an extrovert. I love being around people. And it was more focused on kind of like uh, churning out a lot of calculations of design. It was a little slower pace, especially in nuclear, that I wasn't really wanting. So I decided that I was looking for a change in, in my career. And this is where I think that having a good network of people in your life and friends and colleagues really comes into play. And one of my friends, uh, Amy Korn, who I believe was actually, she was on your podcast, I think, episode 21, I think it was. So she's actually been here on the podcast. She told me I should meet up with her boss and mentor, Guy Lund, who's got like 30 plus years of experience in dams, and talk to him. So I made the opportunity to go talk with him and see his passion and his desire to be a dam engineer and be a structural engineer's focus on dams it really was uh, convincing and very almost contagious, that kind of passion. And I, I wanted to be a part of that. So I made this the switch seven years ago and got into dams. I love hearing all the like influences that you've had in your life. And I mean, they always say it has like, you know, you're really fortunate to have that. And also then like considering how you're paying it forward. You know, I like, I love that about just our profession in general. Yeah, it's definitely a, a privilege to be a structural, a civil engineer that we get to give back to society and help our communities. How you mentioned that you had so many mentors to guide you. I think a lot of us have that words. All you need are those words of encouragement to pursue something that you weren't really ready to do, but you just needed that little push and you'll check it out. And then that's where, how we all got to where we are today. You did mention you had one of your mentors talk about dams in an exciting way. So what did he actually like say that triggered you? Like, oh, this is, I'm switching my entire career from you know, typical structures. I'm going into dance. Like, what was it about it? I know the enthusiasm, but were there anything, I guess what was the sales pitch on dams? Just talking to him in general about, because to be honest, in school, 
I've never learned about a career in DMs. I kind of always looked at structural engineers do new projects and you're always designing something from scratch and you're going to see it be built. I never thought like, okay, uh, something that's already built, what am I going to do? What is there to do? So I never considered, never crossed my mind. And when I talked to him and he was telling me a little bit about the industry in general, is we get to really analyze these structures that have been around for decades. A lot of them were built in the, some of them at the turn of the century. A lot of them, of course, back in the 30s and 40s and 50s, they go back so long. And we have an obligation, I think, to be good stewards of that infrastructure to ensure that they stand for another 50 years or more. And when he told me about it, he goes, you know, you're going to be working on a lot of heavy seismic analysis, flood analysis. And we're not just dealing with, okay, we're talking about a hundred year flood, or you're talking about a an earthquake, you know, that's a um, hundred year earthquake or a 200 year earthquake, 2,500 year earthquake. We're talking the maximum credible earthquake. So we're talking, some of these can be on the order of 10,000 year events. These are huge, huge events. So we're talking massive loads. And many of these structures were not designed for that load in mind. The history behind seismic uh, hazard analysis really is a relatively new field. And we're learning more and more about uh, you know the seismic hazards in various regions. Some regions are experiencing more seismic hazards than others, and we're learning more and more about that. So getting a chance to see how he was able to showcase that there's a lot of work that's involved in analyzing these structures to ensure that they're able to withstand and, be, and keep the residents safe downstream, ensuring that uh, you know there's not going to be a lot of our dams are high hazard dams. And when I say high hazard, I, I don't mean that they're at risk of failing. It's There's a lot of residents who would be inundated in the event of an, of, um, an event so uh, occurring. When he was telling me about that, and the other thing that also was is interesting is that it's not code-driven, it's, it's guidelines-based. So we're not talking about, okay, we're going to look up uh, in the code and we're going to see that we need to apply, you know, like Ashto or any of these other industries. We're really looking at things from a failure mode perspective, developing those failure modes from like, okay, if you get this flooding event or this seismic event, how does that progress through and lead to a, a failure or uncontrolled release of the reservoir? We're tracking that through and we're relying uh, heavily on engineering judgment too. And the fundamentals are very much emphasized. So we're talking about mechanics and materials. We're talking about the basic building blocks of our engineering curriculum and applying that. We are use, using parts of the codes, of course, but we're not relying on them to tell us a kind of step-by-step what to do. Every project is unique. What's so cool about it is that like one of the selling points too was in some industries in, in structural engineering, you, you can get your to your 10-year mark and maybe you know a lot. In dams, you can get to your 25-year mark and you're just barely hitting your stride. And that's what's so cool. I see so many people that are older, partially retired, and they still have such a passion to want to continue to work. And that to me, I want to be a part of that. That was the selling point for me. I love seeing the passion that you have with like talking about why it's so fascinating. Is there, can you say why like the concrete gravity and arch dams are so interesting to you personally? Like we talked about, every single project is just unique and only about 20% of the dams in the country are concrete dams, but every project has a unique aspect to it. You could put the same dam, you could have the same design of the dam, but apply it in a different geographic location and you completely changed up your analysis. You might have a different seismic event, different flooding event. You even might have concerns that are different for each of those structures. Like when they built that, when they were gathering up the uh, materials, like the aggregate, you might have concerns over alkali silica reaction, ASR. And that's something to also consider in some of that. So where they were getting the materials from, you know, you also have to kind of take into account the geography of the region, 
you're dealing with these incredible iconic structures too that have been around decades and you get to be a part of ensuring that they are around and stay around for another generation or two so that people can get their water supply their hydropower their irrigation for agriculture as well as the nice thing too one of the other benefits of this is you also get recreation out of the deal too so it's kind of cool these dams they're not just like these single structures it's community based basically the dam is helping an, an entire community or cities you're not building them every day it seems like there's a lot of maintenance but in terms of analyzing them for like the latest codes and things yeah it seems like a really creative work process because like you were saying it's not just open the code book step one step two step three there's a, probably a lot of uh advanced analysis techniques and probably some nonlinear performance-based design with all the new seismic codes and, okay, how are we going to apply this to dams? And all the dams are different. I get that. That, that sounds pretty cool. And you did mention that only about 20% of the dams in the U.S. are concrete. Could you share some of the advantages of concrete dams and maybe some of the disadvantages on why they're only 20%? One of the biggest reasons why the dams are only 20% are about concrete are they're expensive to build. And the other aspect too is the geographic location of some structures are, do not allow for, I'd say, the use of concrete. For example, if you're in a very flat environment such as Florida, usually you see more levees and more embankment dams because that's the material that you have readily available. And uh, whereas in the West, there's a lot of more opportunity for concrete dams because you have a lot of narrow canyons. When you think about the narrowest of the, of the canyons, that that really helps make that a really prime location to use a concrete dam, such as an arch dam. So you could really rely on the buttressing effects from the canyon walls. The other thing that, from a, a disadvantage standpoint, is that, like I said, the economics are probably the pretty much the main driver. From an environmental standpoint, too, I think a lot of people are concerned about you know concrete and you know the CO two emissions that you get from that. The nice thing is about the work that I do on existing infrastructure is that. We're trying to preserve it. We're not trying to build something new. So we're really, I think, being environmental stewards to help ensure that this stays around for longer instead of having to build something brand new and incorporating more new concrete and whatnot. Those are, I think, some of the, the pros and the cons. Like I said, that the failure mechanisms of embankment structures are, there's a lot more there. You could have, you know, an animal burrow that could lead to piping failure and, you know, water getting through from one end to the other, and that could sabotage your dam. There's, again, there's lots of inspections that occur but with concrete, you don't have to worry about that. Most of the time, the failure driver is actually in the foundation, where there's not a lot of failures that really occur within the structure itself. It's mostly many times as good as the material that you're founded upon. I'm definitely biased, but I do prefer concrete dams. And as a structural engineer, I think I'm not as uh, interested in geotechnical as much as I am in materials like concrete and steel. Before we go on here, I'd like to recognize our sponsor for this episode, PPI, a leader in engineering exam prep for the FE and PE exams. PPI provides expert prep courses and study resources designed to help you pass the FE and PE exams the first time. PPI's live online courses include hours of lectures, problem-solving demonstrations, exam strategy sessions, office hours, and a passing guarantee. Check out PPI today at ppi2pass.com to see all the options available for FE and PE exam prep. I was going to ask you another question about like the concrete gravity and arch dams. And before I do that, I was actually thinking a little bit more about like maybe some of our younger listeners and just curious, since a lot of people that do get into structural engineering don't get into dams, could you explain 
concrete gravity dam versus an arch dam? Concrete gravity dam is a dam where you're relying simply on the mass of the structure to hold it in place. So they're very large concrete structures, and typically they're unreinforced. Most concrete arch dams and gravity dams are unreinforced. You're relying surely on the weight of the structure in a mass concrete dam to hold back the forces of the reservoir from sliding or overturning, and that's what you're relying upon. In an arch dam, you're using the beauty of the arch, just like the Colosseum where you have arches all around. You're relying on the compression throughout the arch to go through the structure and then into the abutments or into the column that it's supporting. Similarly, in dams, we're using the compression effect. You put the arch into the reservoir, so the reservoir is pushing on the arch there, and the forces are transferred through compression into the left and right abutments of the dam. And so, you know, what's really fascinating about this uh, sidetrack on that is that, you know, arch dams, when we really were building them the heyday back in the, the 30s and 40s, they were really the NASA of that day. Before space travel, like that was like pushing the envelope on design. They were trying to cut back on material cost. And, you know, they built these amazingly ornate structures. They both sometimes are curvature in both of the upstream and down, but curvature upstream and downstream, as well as curvature, uh, they call them double curvature arch dams, where you see it also curvature in the um, vertical direction. They were doing all they could to push the envelope to ensure that material costs were lessened. When you think about that too, at that time, labor was a lot cheaper. Material was your biggest driver. I think that today it probably is both, but <laughs> they had a, a huge supply of skilled labor to help build these structures. And so they were pushing the envelope on design. And I think that's just one of the cool, fascinating things about arch dams in general. I appreciated that explanation and I think some other people will as well. So there's a couple other dams that are also concrete that I just want to bring up is that you have slab and buttress dams that are, are simply a buttress and a reinforced concrete slab. That's another type of dam as well that's out there. Amberson is, is a type of uh, patented dam that they have. So that's another version of a concrete dam that's out there. And uh, there's also cyclopean concrete, which is essentially giant rocks, that large aggregate that is then grouted in place using just grout. So you're rotting grout into place. There's a few other dams out there, but like I said, my focus has mostly has been on arch and gravity with a little bit of slab and buttress work as well. So looking at where your focus has been then more specifically, can you talk a little bit about how those types of dams play into providing hydroelectric power and water resources for the communities. When you think about like iconic dams, you think of Hoover, you think of Grand Coulee, you think of Glen Canyon. We need it for our, especially for the West areas where you think of our arid regions, where we rely on it to uh, supply the agricultural needs for irrigation. It provides the water for a lot of these cities that honestly couldn't survive without the water resources that we do provide them. Like, I don't think Vegas or Phoenix would ever exist if it weren't for the dams that are there today. And then in regards to hydropower, that is just, I think, one of the ultimate benefits of dams. And I think you get the ability to have supply the power for these cities to function. And it's good, clean energy that you're also getting from it. So you're getting kind of a an extra bonus effect onto it. And concrete dams in general have allowed us to build into, like I said, these narrow canyons and these these places where it looks like, what are we going to put here? You know, you can get that height, you can get, you know, the longevity that you need out of these structures. And I think that's where the major benefit for concrete dams playing a role in our communities. And many times people don't realize how much they're relying on their dams for just turning the water on for their faucet or being able to um, just live in the communities that they live in. These may not be exist if it weren't for the reservoirs around our country. 
what the civil engineers in terms of all the things that we take for granted, like you mentioned, turning on the faucets, water, electricity, and all the structural buildings that we live in too. So I think that's pretty cool in terms of the civil engineering profession. A lot of stuff we take for granted, but that's civilization right there. You mentioned some analysis method and updating, you know, especially with the new seismic codes and the codes are always being updated. What type of technology do you use or how does technology change when you're analyzing concrete dams and what can we see in the future for structural analysis? What we're seeing, I mean, in terms of seismicity, many times with dams is there's actually specialized engineers that, that do seismic hazard assessments. So they're site-specific seismic evaluations. So you get those results of what the PGA is, what the response spectrum might be. You're not really pulling this like, you know, an, you know, in building analysis, you're usually pulling from ASC 7 or some other code that you might pull from. We actually are usually getting our data directly from a site-specific assessment. That's something unique about dams as well. In regards to technology, there's always something to be said for the simple tools that we have at our disposal, such as, you know, survey monuments and using the tools of like piezometers and extensometers and understanding, you know, pressures and, and how that looking at little at data cues to see what we're seeing from the operators at the dams and they're, they're constantly monitoring all this. But in regards to the future, I think one of the things that I've had the benefit of, of being involved in has been performance-based testing. That's been incredible. So really it's focused on the dynamic analysis of, of dams. And regardless of whether you're looking at something statically or dynamically, a static analysis is essentially a dynamic analysis with acceleration equal to zero. But every single structure has a an inherent characteristic with its natural frequencies and mode shapes. Understanding using performance-based testing to uh, what I've done in the past is with Dr. Ziad Drone, he's kind of developed a lot of great technology for this with his students at Harvey Mudd, has been to take accelerometers at a dam. And usually you could use either like flow-induced monitoring. So let's say they're spilling out of a out of a spillway during like the spring runoff season. You could use those vibrations to get us kind of like a an energy applied to the system and kind of see what kind of, of frequencies you're getting. You could convert the accelerations in the time domain and convert them into the frequency domain and get an idea of, okay, what kind of frequencies are we getting here? And if you apply that, you could use that in your numerical models, you know, these finite element models that we're using to try to help calibrate your models to see how that aligns. I think there's a lot of work that still needs to be done, but it gives you a benchmark. And I think that's something too in uh, our industry is we don't have the benefit to test our structures to failure. That's not an option, but performance-based testing might give you an idea to see, okay, well, where am I at right now? What's the frequency of the structure right now? And if there's changes to that frequency over time, similar to kind of like um, when you go to the doctor and you get an EKG for your heart, you kind of know if something has changed, you're going to notice change. You might not see a change in your body, but maybe your, your heart's starting to notice a few different changes in there. And so there's definitely some power behind it. It's a matter of, I think, enhancing our ability to marry the numerical model and the performance-based testing together. And that's going to be the challenge because there's so many various parameters involved between you know the modulus of your structure, you got of your concrete, you have the modulus of the foundation that is resting upon, you have multiple, you have redundant load paths so many times where this can travel. You might have cracks in your in your concrete that you don't know how that's changing the modulus of your structure either. So some of this stuff might be evident by visual observations, which is which is very important too. You know, don't underestimate visual observations, but to know there might be things that are hairline cracks that you may not even be able to see. And I think that's where performance-based testing might be able to give you clues and indications of whether something is changing over time. So that's where I kind of see the industry will eventually get to. 
we're borrowing concepts from our colleagues in the aerospace and aeronautic and mechanical engineering realm to pull from and maybe apply that to our structures because we don't have the luxury of testing these to failure. Like they have the luxury to build prototypes, break it and see what the limit is. We can't do that. <laughs> this is an opportunity, I think, to do it non-destructively. I am going to kind of resort or refer back to when we were talking earlier about some of the people that sort of got you into engineering and the mentors that you've had. It sounds like uh, you spoke obviously very highly of them and there's still a lot of them are still in your life today. Can you share a little bit more on the importance of these roles in your career? It's definitely something when I'm out talking to newer engineers or having conversations with them, I always encourage them to look for these mentors in their realm to kind of just lead them along the way as they grow in their career. I think it's really important too. So yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the importance of them in your career. So yeah, I think having you know multiple mentors in life is extremely important for both career as well as just life in general. You know, having people that are in your corner and helping you learn and grow and develop your skills, you know, that's where I see a mentor really helping. And you don't need to have a mentor that works with you sometimes. Sometimes you can look outside of your, even your field and find somebody that can help you and just talk to you about, hey, you know, what have I done with my career? You know, my career trajectory, where do I want to be? You could have those types of people in your life. And I also think there's a very important place for cheerleaders, people in your life that are out there cheering you on, your family, your friends, people that are, are out there just in your corner and making sure that you're going to succeed. And when you're having you know, a downtime that you have those people that you could fall back on and rely on. So there's definitely a place for both mentorship and cheerleaders. And sometimes that person serving as mentor can be both a cheerleader and mentor. And there's many times where I think Again, I'm very much into the pay it forward kind of approach. You know, you want to be able to become that mentor to somebody else as well as your mentee, but you could also become a mentor. I think there's just so much learning. I know that my company, Gannett Fleming, really does emphasize mentorship and really tries to find people to get connected, even if it's outside of their particular expertise. And that's been, I think, a great thing as well. And if you don't have a mentor, I tell people, you know, find one. There's so many people that are willing to serve that role. I mean, whether it be a professor, whether it be a you know, a person, a coworker, a supervisor, so many people would be willing to do that. So find that in your life for sure. Yeah. And I know even professional organizations, I think they're getting the importance of the mentorship. So if you can't find one, I know professional organizations are offering programs to make that easier as well. Jeremy, I know you're an advocate for humor and levity in your work. Why do you think that's important to have fun in the workplace? And can you give us some examples? I hear you do some voice impressions and <laughs> to, you know, to bring positive work culture and, and bring your team together. Well, I feel very fortunate to work in, a, in an environment where I think there's a lot of people besides myself that also bring their own personality and mix of levity to the workplace. I think it's extremely important because you think about the connections that you make with people. Sometimes sharing a laugh with somebody can just be such a great bond. I was actually listening to a TED talk not that long ago that talked about how there really is a human connection involved with laughing and you could develop, I think, stronger ties to your team members. And that's important to have in a workplace. And I think uh, we have a serious role as structural engineers. Like, I mean, society is depending on us and we do need to take that very seriously. But it doesn't mean that we can't have fun and enjoy what we do too, being our whole selves to the office. I like doing voice impressions and, and I'll give you an example of such, okay? I'm going to take this time to just uh, thank EMI and the podcast, okay? As Donald Trump. 
So first of all, I just want to say you guys are doing a tremendously great job. I really think that this is an amazing podcast. You're bringing great, really great awareness to the field of structural engineering. I mean, really, a lot of people need to know about it. A lot of people really do. And uh, it's not just me. It's bipartisan, too, I think. So like, l- listen to Bernie Sanders tell you this, too. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Trump. I really do appreciate it. I think that, you know, this is a wonderful opportunity for people, students, and other professionals to share what they know about their career in structural engineering. We need more people to get involved. We need more people to be here. And the best part about this podcast, in my opinion, is it's completely free. You can go and download it wherever you have a subscription. Just go get it. Get the podcast there. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Sanders, for that. Uh, Senator Sanders, I really do appreciate it. As you and uh, Mr. Trump said, I think that there's a, a great opportunity to really share what structural engineers do for our society. We Many times we take them for granted. We pretty much just expect to have that our infrastructure will just, we go across a bridge, it's going to stand. We go and we have water running on our faucet, it's going to be there. We need to do better about making sure that that is understood. And these civil engineers are responsible for that. And I'm going to pass it off to my colleague, uh, Mr. Biden. So here's the deal. Everybody needs to do their part of, of trying to share what we do. And I think this podcast does just that. I mean, really, it's great, great stuff. So just kudos to you guys for what you guys are doing and just bring awareness to structural engineering. Thank you. <laughs> do you do this up on stage, too? I just have to ask. <laughs> no, I don't. You should. I do you should not take do it, it on stage. No. This needs to be beyond the workplace. Yeah. This is some stand-up or uh, office stand-up or talent show. In terms of you were saying even some of the seriousness of our, our jobs. Yeah, it's serious. It's um, I had some friends in the military and their stuff is serious. But I think one of the things that I, I learned from them is it's a serious job, but it's super important to have that levity, that humor. And you can kind of see them when they're around each other too. They're, you know, they're always cracking jokes and it's serious, but I think that's how you can kind of get through that. And it definitely builds that bond and work culture. So I think that's great. Well, I appreciate what you guys are doing. I think this is a great podcast and opportunity to really broadcast it. Like I would say one of my personal missions is to bring awareness to the career option that I'm in, in DAMS. I really want to encourage students to consider structural engineering, not just, uh, and I think buildings and bridges is great, but also consider that there is definitely a career in DAMS too. Don't just think that existing infrastructure is all that. There's nothing to do. There's a lot to do. And I know that there's no ribbon cuttings for, hey, we're doing more maintenance. This is great. <laughs> or we're doing more uh, analysis on this structure. Not really the exciting parts uh, of what people think of is a very important thing. And if anyone does have a chance to listen to, I think it's a John Oliver skit that does, it's called infrastructure. If you just type that in and watch on your own time, it really is a really funny skit kind of about just our infrastructure in general and what just being an awareness to the importance of it. It's not the most exciting, but he tries to make it exciting, make it into a movie. I want to thank you for providing us with all this insightful information today. And then I was also curious if you could let our listeners know how they can connect with you. I would say the best way to connect with me is just to go to LinkedIn and find me. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Thank you guys very much. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. We would love to hear your feedback, comments, and or questions. To leave them, please visit structuralengineeringchannel.com. There you will find the summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, which is episode number 103, as well as links to any of the resources or websites mentioned during the episode. Don't forget to subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, we wish you the best in all of your structural engineering endeavors. 
Thank you for listening. And don't forget to download the latest version of our AE Industry Trends Report to get answers to the questions that you want to ask your staff, but you may be afraid to do so. How long will the great resignation last? How long should you allow employees to work remotely? And how are successful firms using data to grow sustainably for the long term? You can learn the answers to these questions and more by downloading the report at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.